Well, good morning. Um, thanks for reading God's Word for us, Susan. Uh, my name is Bill Gorman, and I serve as the campus pastor here at the Brookside campus. It's so good to see each one of you here with us this morning. And I wanted to uh, extend a special welcome to you, certainly if you're a guest with us. But also, um, today is Move Up Sunday. So all those who were previously fifth graders, um, who are now going into sixth grade, are joining us in corporate worship. So welcome to you. Um, if you are now heading into sixth grade, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us. If you see one of those sixth graders, those future sixth graders, greet them, say hi to them, welcome them uh, into this time of worship. And, and all the kids downstairs are also moving up this Sunday. So this is an exciting day for the children who are part of our church family. And uh, now as we prepare to look into this passage, um, I'd love to just take a moment and uh, pray and ask for God's help as we do that. Uh, Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have revealed your word to us and that you have given us this gift. We are truly um, in the place of when we hear your word read, being saying, thanks be to God that you have given us your word. And I pray now as we study it together um, that your spirit would be at work illumining it to us, uh, transforming it as we hear it. Um, we know that it's only the work of your spirit that can do that. And, uh, and so we ask for that to happen um, now as we take these minutes and, and look at this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I, um, I love a lot of things, but one of the things that I always have loved ever since I was a kid, I love information. Uh, even as a little kid, I loved going to the library and just soaking up information. Some of my, my favorite memories of a kid truly are of being in the, the children's room at the Kirkwood Public Library where I grew up in St. Louis. It was this great, they had a giant sort of colored caterpillar painted on the wall, and I just, I would check out as many books as my mom would let me check out. And I love checking out books about animals, specifically uh, snakes and reptiles. There was a while I went through, I wanted to be a herpetologist. Um, World War II, electronics, volcanoes. I mean, I just anything I could get my hand on. I loved reading as a kid. I loved information. And uh, my dad would let me stay up late sometime with him uh, watching on PBS documentaries. You know, we love to watch Nova and Nature um, together. And in fact, my favorite uh, show on PBS as a kid um, was a little show. It was called Square One. Did anyone watch Square One? I see a couple of people. So Square One was this math show, and there was a segment of the show called MathNet, and it was, it was sort of a parody of the detective show Dragnet. But instead of these people, they weren't, um, they weren't detectives. They were mathematicians, and they didn't carry guns. They carried calculators and shoulder holsters. And they used math to solve crimes, and I loved it. And uh, I think what I really actually loved more than anything was sort of the crime-solving part. The math stuff didn't really rub off so much, which is why I kind of went the humanities direction and not engineering. Um, But I love information. However, recently, um, I've begun to experience a little bit of information overload. And uh, as many of you know, last week, Rachel and I announced that we are having our first baby uh, here in December, December 3rd. And as I've entered that world, as we were preparing for the arrival of this little one, I have just been hit with a tsunami of information. Uh, Strollers, car seats, high chairs, swings, OBs, pediatricians, birthing centers, sonograms, video monitors. I mean, on and on and on. Just this overwhelming wave of information. And and in so many ways, I think my uh, my life, rather, has been a quest to live a, a better life through information. I mean, I love the, the Life Hacker website. I love uh, the GTD method for managing time. I subscribe to Consumer Reports. If I'm going to buy anything, I'm on Amazon reading all the reviews, you know, whether it's a dehumidifier or a vacuum cleaner or whatever. I mean, Rich will tell you, I, I'll read every single review I can get my hands on. 
But in the face of all this information, how do we really decide what to do? How do we really know what the best choice is? I mean, we live in the information age, right? But oftentimes, more information doesn't automatically lead to better decisions or a better life. In fact, more information can often lead to sort of paralysis of of not knowing what to do. You see, the real question isn't how can I get more information? The real question is how do I avoid failing at life? And to answer that question, what I need even more than information is wisdom. You know, how do we not fail at life? That's the realm of wisdom. Wisdom is all about a life well lived, a life not flunked. And the book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. And wisdom in the book of Proverbs is defined this way. Wisdom, it's, it's a person and a path. Wisdom is the skill of living life with God according to his design. Wisdom is the skill of living life with God according to his design. And both of those pieces are really important because if we're only seeking to live life with God, but we're not really trying to do it according to his design, we sort of end up with this posture of, well, I'm just going to sort of live my life and kind of live out my agenda, and and God will kind of be there to encourage me along the way, but I'm really doing my thing, and and God's just sort of there to help out and encourage me on on my agenda. In in that kind of a scheme, God becomes really just sort of a glorified therapist or a coach rather than a king, the maker of all things. However, if you just seek to live out God's design without really having a relationship with him, you end up being proud, you end up joyless, depressed, pharisaical, looking down at anyone else who sort of haven't figured out the design or even down at yourself when you're not living up to the design. You see, wisdom is both a person and a path. It's the skill of living life with God according to his design. You see, we get it wrong when we think that wisdom is like a sort of impersonal set of universal guidelines on the workings of the universe. Rather, wisdom is navigating life in relationship with the God of the universe. It's less like cracking a code and more like going on a long walk. One Old Testament scholar rightly observes that God's will, his design for life, is intensely practical, applying to every aspect of his people's lives, And a proper relation to God and first involves trying hard to understand his truth and then embracing and obeying what one understands. Wisdom is a person and a path. The skill of living life with God according to his design. So as we look at Proverbs chapter 3 this morning, we discover three truths, or rather four truths about wisdom. First, that wisdom involves remembering. Second, wisdom involves relationship. Wisdom involves total reliance, and wisdom involves perseverance. So in this chapter that we're looking at this morning, we see wisdom involves relationship, it involves remembering, total reliance, and perseverance. And as we look at these, I would encourage you to follow along with me uh, in the text. There are Bibles uh, kind of spread throughout the pews if you don't have a Bible with you. Um, also, if you have your smartphone with you, you can go to the Android or Apple store and just download the YouVersion Bible app. Just search for YouVersion. And actually, the upside of having the Bible on your phone is that if you get bored with the sermon, you can start playing Angry Birds and people might think you're still looking at the text. Not encouraging that. I'm just saying it, it may, may be an upside of having it there. If you're using a pew Bible, um, the passage is on page 528. 
So first we see in Proverbs 3, in verses 1 and 2, that wisdom involves remembering. Author says this, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let, my, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will be added to you. You know, the theme of remembering, of not forgetting, of meditating have been with us all throughout sort of these poetry books. We began looking at Psalm 1 and there was this call to meditate on God's word, to be constantly having it before us, meditating on us. Last week as we looked at Psalm 103, um, we saw this call, the psalmist says to his soul, do not forget all the benefits of the Lord. Don't forget, soul. And then again here, Solomon, uh, who's writing this, he's the wisest of Israel's kings, and he's speaking to his son, and he says, Son, don't forget all that I've taught you about living life with God according to his design. Remember everything that I've commanded you. And why is this so important? Why this emphasis again and again on remembering? Well, I mean, it's, it's simple because we forget. I mean, as people, we just tend to forget things. Um, and I, I mean, I'm chief there. I mean, you could tell Rachel I'm super absent-minded. I just, I forget things all the time. In fact, I had a, a seminary professor who said, most of your pastoral ministry, as a class he was telling us this, most of your pastoral ministry will be reminding people of what they already know. We need to remind one another of the truth that we so often forget. I need you to remind me. We need to remind one another so that we constantly have it before us. But this kind of memorization, this kind of remembering, I should say, involved in wisdom, is never mere sort of rote memorization. It's not as though you can just sort of commit the Ten Commandments to mind and then be like, okay, now I'm wise. Rather, the remembering is the sort of remembering that involves a total life-shaping. It's a life-shaping remembering. Remembering God's commands also involves, and this is so key, remembering the story, the context in which those commands appear. You see, the, one of the gross sort of caricatures of Christianity of the Bible is that it's all about just obeying rules. It's central to what, what the Bible is about, what Christian faith is about, is keeping the rules. And what happens is that oftentimes when we get that mindset is we've forgotten the big story of the Bible— in which those rules appear, in which they make sense. You can't make sense of the rules, the commands, unless you know the story. And the Bible can really simply be divided up into four big chapters. If you want to think about the story, there's lots of nuance and complexity, but just four big movements. You have creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. You have the ought, the is, the can, and the will. Your creation is found in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And in creation, you see this all-wise, all-good, just, gracious God who creates this world of perfect harmony and beauty. This is the world as it ought to be. However, in Genesis 3, tragedy enters the human story, and human beings rebel against God. They reject him. They try to put themselves in his place, and this is the fall. Disaster and chaos now enter the world. The beauty, the wholeness, the delight is shattered. This is the is, the reality in which we find ourselves. Creation is what ought to be. The fall is what is. But all is not lost, though, because God and his great love and his mercy and his grace has enacted a plan to bring himself glory by redeeming a broken world. And the bulk of the Bible from Genesis 3 straight on to Revelation 20 is the story of redemption, the story of what can be, what can be. And finally, in Revelation 21 and 22, the last two chapters of the Bible, we get a glimpse of God's finally restored world, what will be someday when God's work of redemption is complete. 
You see, by revealing who God is and, and his design for life, laws, commandments, teaching, they help us navigate the is as well as anticipate what will be. But if we forget this larger story and all we focus on are the rules, the commands, they just become oppressive and meaningless restrictions. We have to see these laws in the context of the big story of what God is doing. So how do we avoid failing at life? By remembering the teaching, the commandments, the story in which they come. By reminding one another, remembering together the path that God has laid out for us. So wisdom involves remembering. Next, in verses 3 and 4, we see that wisdom involves relationship. It says, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. The language of steadfast love, of faithfulness, it's deeply relational. It's, it's deeply covenantal language. And those two terms used together, that we looked at that word even a little bit last week, this hesed, the steadfast love, all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the Bible, is used to describe God's special relationship with his people. And what we said earlier is that wisdom is both a person and a path. Wisdom is the skill of living life with God. It involves a relationship with the designer of life. You see, it's one thing to have the owner's manual to a car. It's quite another to have a relationship with the engineer who actually designed that car. And wisdom is not only a matter of remembering the manual, it's also a matter of knowing the maker. But what is this relationship with God, this maker, this designer, what is it like? Well, if you go back to the beginning of the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 1-7 says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And then later on in Proverbs 9.10, similarly, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. See, the relationship that we have, this covenant, this relationship that we have with the Lord is characterized by this term, the fear of the Lord. But what does this mean? Does it mean that we're sort of terrified with God, that we're constantly dreading that he's about to sort of get us or attack us in some way? And there's certainly language, this dread, to talk about the dread of God that is used in the Bible. But the language that's used in this language of fearing the Lord, it's it's not the same language. And actually, an illuminating example of this is in Psalm 130, verses 3 and 4. It's a fascinating verse. It says this, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But listen to this. But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. You see, forgiveness leads to fearing, which is interesting, right? I mean, forgiveness in this verse actually relieves the dread of punishment, but it leads to fearing. So how does that work? What is the idea of fearing the Lord then? Well, Old Testament scholar scholar Derek Kidner commenting on, on Psalm 103, or Psalm 130, he says this. He says, in reality, these converses confirm the true sense of fear of the Lord in the Old Testament dispelling any doubt that it means anything other than reverence and implies relationship. The sphere of the Lord implies reverence and relationship. To this, Pastor Tim Keller adds, obviously to be in fear of the Lord is not to be scared of the Lord, even though the Hebrew word does have overtones of respect and awe. Fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be so overwhelmed with wonder before him, with the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. 
Wisdom involves a relationship with God characterized by being overwhelmed with wonder before his holiness and beauty and love in such a way that it actually controls you. It shapes you. That your desires and affections are loved or, and loves are irreparably shaped by it. So we've seen wisdom involves remembering. It involves relationship. And in verses 5 through 10, we see that wisdom involves total reliance. Listen to what the author says here, what Solomon says. He says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be a healing to your flesh and a refreshment to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. And then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. Now, if some of you have a background in church, Susan's been around the church for a long time, this is often one of our favorite verses. If you've been around the church, you've probably have heard this verse, you're familiar with it, you may have memorized it. And we love the part of that verse, of, of the, the God, is, God is going to make our path straight, that he's going to guide us. I mean, really, the idea there is this progressing toward a goal that God has for us. It's the trusting, the, the not leaning on ourselves, the acknowledging him in everything. That's the part that is difficult for us. You see, central to a life of wisdom is recognizing that God is God and that we are not, and then trusting him to be God. So what does it mean to trust God? Well, trust in this context, it means a total reliance. It means to feel secure, to have confidence in God. And here again, as so often as we have seen in this wisdom literature, this poetic literature, there's two ways. We saw this with Psalm 1. You see this all over this type of literature. There's two ways. You can either trust in God or you can trust in ourselves. And and you can't do both. There's these two separate paths. We can trust in the Lord or lean on our understanding. We can be wise in our own eyes or we can fear the Lord. And fear of the Lord implies not only a relationship, as we saw just a moment ago, but it also includes this concept of recognition and respect for boundaries, chiefly between creature and creator. The fear of the Lord, it's this awe, this wonder, and it comes from the fact that we recognize there's a boundary between creature and creator. The most fundamental dividing line in all of reality isn't between material and immaterial or between mind and body or between, you know, things that are conscious or or persons or things that are unconscious and aren't persons. No, the fundamental line that separates all of reality is the line between creature and creator. And if until we get that straight, that no, no, there's no Christian version of the good life that can exist without a clear acknowledgement of, of God as creator and everything else, you and me as not creator, as creatures. We can't live a truly good and wise life, at least not as the Bible depicts it, until we constantly recognize this, this fundamental division between creature and creator. A defining quality of creatureliness then, and, and all of us here are creatures, none of us are the creator, a defining quality of what it means to be a creature is dependence and submission. And this is what Solomon is saying to his son in these verses. He's saying, recognize and rejoice in your dependence on God. Trust in him. Lean on him in everything. And total reliance means not being wise in our own eyes, but fearing God. It means knowing that we don't have it all figured out. It means knowing that we can't have it all figured out. We're not in the place to have it all figured out. 
Notice the alls in this verse as well. With all of your heart, in all your ways. This is total dependence. In every area, no facet of life is excluded. No part of our life is excluded here. Work, vocation, sex, relationships, finding a spouse, being single, being married, trying to have children, trying to raise children, planning your weekend. It all requires total reliance. Now, I could see you saying here at this point, okay, now, Bill, really, um, total reliance, even in planning my weekend, I mean, do, you, do I need to, like, pray about every single thing I'm going to do on my weekend? Um, I mean, maybe. I, I don't know. I mean, that's what you're called to do. But I think what's helpful is we think about total reliance. It's not necessarily about taking time to actually stop and pray about every little single thing we do, but total reliance is really about a posture. It's a posture of dependence, and as you develop this posture of dependence, this habit of dependence on the Lord, it, it flows into everything. I mean, think about good posture just in life. If you develop a good posture of, of sitting, it transfers to everything you do, right? If you're sitting in a car, if you're sitting at work, if you're sitting at a desk, if you're sitting at, on a lumpy pew here at the church, good posture, it's just, it's natural. If you have good posture, you just, whenever you sit down, you have good posture. The same thing is we develop this posture of dependence. It leads us to a reflex of wisdom in our lives. But what does this dependence look like? What does this posture look like? Well, I think the best way to think about this, and we don't have time to to go through all the examples, but it's modeled for us in the life of Jesus, the most brilliant being in the universe, who's utterly dependent on his Father and empowered by the Spirit, I love what John Stott, the great English preacher and theologian, wrote. He says, Christ himself takes on the dignity of dependence. He is born a baby, totally dependent on the care of his mother. He needs to be fed. He needs to have his bottom wiped. He needs to be propped up when he rolls over. And yet he never loses divine dignity. And at the end, on the cross, again, he becomes totally dependent, limbs pierced, stretched out, unable to move. So Stott says, in the person of Christ, we learn that dependence does not, cannot deprive a person of their dignity, of their supreme worth. And I love this. He says, if dependence was appropriate for God of the universe, it is certainly appropriate for us. You are a creature. You are made to depend on God. You are made to be fueled by dependence on him not leaning on your own understanding, on not trusting in yourself. And next, something weird happens in the text. Did you notice it back when we read it earlier? Um, look at verses 9 and 10. So we're talking about trusting and, and being not wise in our own eyes. And then all of a sudden, Solomon just throws in, and honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce, and then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats bursting with wine. These verses almost seem out of place. As I was studying it this week, why all of a sudden is there just this little bit on money and then he's back to some other stuff? Why does he all of a sudden mention wealth right here? How does wealth connect with this theme of of trusting in God and not leaning on our own understanding? Well, I think Solomon mentions wealth here because he knows that money and wealth are what are most likely to make us rely on ourselves rather than God. Money and wealth are most likely, one of the most likely things to make us be wise in our own eyes. You know, if we have enough money, and let's be honest, we can never really have enough money, but if we get to like we have enough money, 
then it feels like we can provide for ourselves. We don't really need to trust God. As long as my checking account has enough money in it, I can pay off my credit card bills, I can get the house I want, I can buy the food I need. If I have enough money, I don't feel like I really need to rely, depend on God. Wealth also, it quickly makes us wise in our own eyes. You see, if you've made a lot of money, if you've been really successful, say, at at computer programming or or real estate or or anything, if you're an expert and you've made a lot of money in some area, it tends to blind us because it makes us begin to think that we're actually smart in every area of life just because we've been successful in one. So we think that we're experts in, in relationships and parenting, all these things. In reality, we need God's help in all of those facets of life. So money can so easily make us wise in our own eyes. It can blind us to how much we really need others' help and God's help in managing our life. Just because we're good at one facet of life and have made a lot of money doesn't necessarily mean that we have all of life figured out. See, money will always show you what you worship. It will always show you what you're really depending on. So I think Solomon says here, we brings in money here, he says, because when you honor the Lord with your wealth, in all of its form, not just money, but intellect, skill, talent, gifts, everything that he's given you. When you give him the best of what you have, we are acknowledging, A, where it comes from, where it prevents us from being wise in our own eyes. It says, God, I know this is a gift from you. I know you've given me this. I can't be wise in my own eyes. This is such a gift from you. And secondly, it forces a certain dependence back on him. As we intentionally give this back, we say, I'm giving up a portion of this because I trust that you're in control. I'm giving you back a part of this because I can depend on you. Honoring God with our wealth, it places us in a posture of dependence in the way that nothing else does, I think. So wisdom involves remembering. It involves relationship. It involves total reliance. And and finally, in verses 11 and 12, we see that wisdom involves perseverance. It says, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him who he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. Wisdom doesn't come easy. It doesn't come easy to us because we are all by default in the category of the simple. And let me explain that for a minute. When you study the book of Proverbs, if you're reading through the book of Proverbs and open here, you'll notice there are three main characters in the book of Proverbs. There's the wise the foolish, and the simple. The wise are those who have committed to loving God. They're committed to walking along his path. They are the ones who have, who have learned the skill of living life with God according to his design. The foolish, on the other hand, are the opposite. They are committed to living a life apart from God. They are committed to doing what they want, uh, following their own design. And then there are the simple. And the simple aren't yet. And this is really who the book of Proverbs is written to. The simple to us. We haven't really maybe fully made the commitment one way or the other. The simple are always in a process of either becoming the wise or becoming the foolish. You see, none of us are yet what we should be. None of us are yet what we even want to be. I bet if I went around this room and we were really honest with ourselves, none of us would say, I'm exactly who I want to be. We're certainly not all that we should be. Every one of you is a rough misshapen, cracked chunk of unfinished marble. But God is determined to form you into a beautiful image of Christ. But the process of becoming wise, the process of being formed into the image of Christ requires discipline that is often painful and unpleasant. 
C.S. Lewis describes this using the metaphor of the house, of a house. He says, imagine yourself as a living house, and God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He is getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. And you, you knew those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought. Throwing up a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. You see, the process is always painful. But if we persevere, there is great beauty and joy to be had. As the author of Hebrew puts it, Hebrews puts it, from the moment, for the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, when we despise discipline, when we push back against discipline, we actually despise all that God, our tender heavenly Father, who's willing to be severe in his mercy, desires to make us be, namely our true selves, who we were always created to be. But when we endure discipline, we are when we are trained by it, our true selves begin to appear. And we see incredible fruit, fruitfulness and joy. Listen just again to all that this passage describes, that all that comes to those who embrace the person and path of wisdom. This is just right out of, the, of, of Proverbs 3, but I'm just listening to them all together. Length of days and years of life and peace will be added to you. You will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. He will make your path straight. It will be a healing to your, fre- to your flesh and a refreshment to your bones. The question for us is how do we get that? How do we avoid failing at life? How do we get a life like that? And at one level, we can't avoid failing at life, right? I mean, every single one of us is, is failing life, is messing it up today. No single one of us sitting here this morning is living a completely wise life. But the good news of the gospel is that the one who he is himself, the embodiment of wisdom, Jesus, who is both the person and the path, has lived the truly wise life for us. And when you realize that Jesus is the only one who has ever truly succeeded at life, then you are well on your way to living a truly wise life. Not a life of defeatism, but a life of joy-fueled, spirit-empowered, Christ-exalting wisdom. I love what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says this. He says, The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than man. For consider your calling, brothers and sisters. He's speaking to all of us here. Not many of you, not many of us were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble worth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to save the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, 
so it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That is good news. Not many of us are wise, are powerful in the eyes of the world, but Christ has become wisdom to us. Do not be wise in your own eyes, but boast in Christ, and you will find the truly good and wise life lived with God according to his design. As Paul says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And we celebrate that power in communion nearly every week here at the Brookside campus. And communion is a tangible reminder of the good news of the gospel, that our sins have been forgiven, that we who are weak, that we who are powerless, that we who are not wise in the eyes of the world have been rescued and have been saved. In communion, the gospel is made present to our senses in unique ways, not just to our minds and our hearts, but we get to taste and touch and see this reminder of the good news of the gospel. And you don't have to be a member of Christ's community if you're this morning as a guest for the first time, but you're a follower of Jesus. You are welcome at his table. Um, of course, if you um, are still figuring out, if you consider yourself a skeptic, you're trying to understand, or you're just this morning, you just need some time to reflect and pray, you're welcome to stay in your seat and use this time just to pray and reflect. But when you do come to the communion table, just come in groups of four or five, gather around, take the bread, dip it in the cup, and then take together as a group. There are two communion stations here up front, and there's two in the back. Um, this one in the back on this side has gluten-free communion elements available if that's something that you need. Um, and again, if you're a guest with us, you've probably noticed that these pews aren't the widest. Um, and so if you are getting in and out of your aisle, um, which it tends to work best to go outside these outside aisles and then kind of come back up through the center aisle, and if you have to bump into someone a little bit or climb over someone, we're used to that. Um, it's kind of a family feel here, so don't feel bad if you need to just kind of step over someone in that process. And as you come, take your time. Don't feel rushed. Enjoy this moment together as a church family. Well, Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. He said, Teek, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. He invites us to do this in remembrance of him. So now as we prepare to come, let's pause and pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have sent your son, the Logos, the divine wisdom, that he has been made known to us. And that as we place our total trust and reliance, as we submit to your son, that we find what the truly good and wise life is. Father, I pray that we would be nourished and refreshed, and refreshed that, our, that our spirits would be renewed, that our flesh would be renewed, that our bones would be refreshed as we come and taste and touch the good news of the gospel as we remember in communion. Come now to the Lord's table when you're ready.